This is the Cubicle Renegade podcast, session number 18. Welcome to the Cubicle Renegade podcast, where unfulfilled desk jockeys become fearless entrepreneurs. Learn from corporate escapees and world changers who are successfully building businesses that matter. Here's your host, Caleb Wojcik. Hey everyone, thanks for joining me here on another session of the Cubicle Renegade podcast. Today I sit down with Nathan Berry, who is an independent author who writes about iPhone app development, web apps, um, and more recently, how to self-publish. He's successfully published multiple eBooks in the past, you know, nine months or so that have earned over $150,000. So in this session, we talk about how he successfully launched all of these books without much of an audience and how he's focused so much of his time over the past nine months on teaching and how that's grown his audience the most. So if you're looking to launch your first product or maybe write a book, this is a very, very actionable interview. Let's dive right in. So today I'm joined by Nathan Berry, who's an author of digital books, and he's an iPhone and web app designer and developer. He uh, pretty much is a jack of all trades. He does a lot of stuff on his own, and he hires people when he when he needs to, to, to get things done. But thanks for joining me today, Nathan. Thanks for having me. So, so what do you do online right now, and what have you been up to in the past year or so? So I write a blog at NathanBerry.com. And uh, just talking about design and marketing and, you know, building and selling products, basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, my most recent products are two books, one on uh, designing iPhone apps and another on designing web applications. And so building and selling those books allowed me to, or writing and selling those books allowed me to quit my job and basically focus on blogging and, and teaching full time. Mm-hmm. And then you're working on a couple of new projects right now. So what are those projects? Yeah, so the, the biggest new project right now is an email marketing company called ConvertKit. And it's basically, uh, when I was writing and, and promoting my books, email proved to be the, the most effective method for selling by far. Like The conversion rates were way higher than Twitter or Facebook or anything else. And so I'm basically building the email marketing program that I wish I had while selling my books. Awesome. And so we'll get into the success of those books uh, between the two. You're over six figures, correct? Correct. And, yeah. and you know, kind of the process you use to sell those and to reach an audience without having a huge email list or audience yourself. Like what were some of the areas you tapped into that? So we'll, so we'll get into that later in this episode. But first, you know, you have an interesting background education wise and what you did or did not complete. So I'd love for you to give a little bit of your backstory. Yeah. So to start off, I was homeschooled and that allowed me to have an education that was much more tailored to, um, you know, my learning style and what I was interested in. Uh, But more importantly, in order for that to be successful, I had to be heavily engaged in my own education. I couldn't just um, you know, show up to class and, and not do any work. You know, mm-hmm. I had to, um, help plan and put together what I was going to work on and, and, uh, you know, do a lot of things like that and just be very involved. And so I got to the point when I was, uh, I, I guess I was 13 years old. I was a little bit ahead in, in school and, um, all of my friends were quite a bit older than me. And so, you know, they were all close to finishing up high school. And basically what I did is I wanted to be done with, with high school. And mm-hmm. so I talked to my mom and instead of saying like, you know, it's going to be this many years until I'm done, I got her to list out all the requirements that I had to meet and everything that I had to know, you know, complete these things in math and this and, you know, and, all subjects mm-hmm. to list it out. And then I just saw that as a, as a giant to-do list basically. <laughs> and so instead of it taking another, uh, four or five, I guess it would have been four years more. Cause I was already a, a bit ahead, uh, to, to finish high school and, and graduate. I knocked it out in two years. So I was able to graduate at 15. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I went on to college for a couple years, uh, and that was a really good experience for me. 
first I studied graphic design and then marketing. And I didn't learn anything necessarily from those subjects in college, but I got a lot of self-confidence, picked up some social skills. Um, it's interesting so, that you're kind of doing things that are related to those two topics right now. Yeah. So it kind of started I, that for you. Yep. And that's what I was interested in. I started doing web design um, about that same time. And so that's why that was my interest in graphic design was uh, to do web design. But all the skills that I use now are self-taught. Well, not I wouldn't say self-taught because other people taught them to me, mm -hmm. but they were... Uh, it was self-motivated learning in that nobody assigned it to me and forced me to turn in the, you know, right. the assignment by a certain time. I, I like the I, differentiation there between self-taught and self-learning. Yeah. Because, you know, everything that you and I know about blogging and marketing and web design or anything else, we didn't teach that to ourselves. Right. Other people were kind enough to put together all the materials yeah, I mean, we, if you were self-taught, you like go and chop down a tree and, and then it's a canoe, like, you know, but if it's like self-learning, like someone taught you how to do it, but like you had the yeah, drive exactly. to go and find that info. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's been kind of a theme throughout all of my education and continuing up until now. So after two years of college, I decided that I had enough and dropped out and I was doing fairly well with uh, web design, you know, and some freelance projects for local businesses. And um, so, yeah, I basically decided that I liked making money more than spending it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I have the distinction of dropping out of college at 17, <laughs> um, which is before I graduated high school. <laughs> well, I guess I graduated so, high school at eight, at 17 also. So, yeah, but that's funny still. Anyway, so that's kind of my, my story. But that, I guess that defines uh, my approach to learning where uh, I absolutely love learning and it's not something that ends with school. It's, uh, you know, in my design and business and everything else, I make sure to keep learning new skills every day. And so how did you transition from doing web design initially and so you're freelancing when you dropped out of college and then... How did that get into, you know, creating your iPhone and apps and stuff like that and to what you do now? Yeah. So I did freelancing for about, well, I did it through college um, as I got people to pay me increasingly larger amounts of money. My first freelance project was for a hundred bucks. So, you know, we worked, I worked my way up from there, <laughs> but um, let's see. So out, after college, I did freelance projects for about a year. And that was good, uh, but I had quite the roller coaster of income where some months I'd make a couple hundred, like 500 bucks. Um, and other months, you know, I'd bring in like five or 6,000, mm -hmm. which at the time for me was fantastic. Mm -hmm. And so the income roller coaster was frustrating, but there was also an emotional roller coaster that went with it. And so, you know, one week I'd feel like I was on top of the world and and could do anything when it came to business and the next, just because a client was late paying or something like that, mm -hmm. or I couldn't find more work, uh, you know, it'd be pretty depressing. Mm -hmm. And so we'll, we'll come back to why that's important later. But, um, I left the country on a trip to South Africa for five weeks in December, 2008. And, uh, once I got back, there wasn't any, I couldn't find any more work. I'd taken a whole bunch of time off and hadn't lined up new projects and that sort of thing. And uh, so when one of my clients offered me a job leading their software design team, um, I joined them full time and ended up staying for almost three years. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> but as I wanted to make the transition out of that startup that, that I joined and, and worked at for a few years, I knew I wanted to go back to freelancing and, and my own projects, but I wanted to avoid that emotional roller coaster of making a bunch of money in one month and, and a little bit of money in the next. So the first thing that I did to help that was I saved up a bunch of money. Uh, last, the, 
you know, freelancing round one, I had no money in the bank and Mm -hmm. I spent everything as it came in for round two. I was determined to pay myself a consistent amount of money each month. Um, and out of a larger bucket and, you know, maybe my income would, would range from like a thousand to 10,000 every month. But what I paid myself was going to be a consistent 4,000 bucks a month. That takes a lot of self-control. Yeah. And it, and it, it takes time, uh, to build up a bank account to mm-hmm. do that out of. Um, but I wanted to, uh, I guess by the time I was leaving, um, that job I had, you know, I was married and my son had just been born. And so I needed to not subject them to, uh, the ups and downs right. of entrepreneurship and at least to the same extent that I had it before. So the other thing that I did was while I was learning or while I was working for this company, the iPad came out and they wanted to have an app in the app store. And so no one on on the team internally knew how to do it, but we sat down and started learning and, and worked with an outside company. And I just tried to learn as much as I could about app development and then started building my own apps on the side with, uh, with the little bit I knew getting help from, you know, any other developer who would help Mm -hmm. me on it or answer questions. And so with that, I was able to uh, put together an iPad app called One Voice uh, that basically the idea behind One Voice is if, if you don't have the ability to speak, say nonverbal autism or you had a stroke and lost the ability to speak, then you can build sentences on the iPad using it and then it has synthesized speech and it speaks for you. So I built that app kind of slowly in my free time in order to learn. And then after releasing it, it started to do about a thousand dollars a month and kind of build up from there. Mm-hmm. And I stayed at my job. I, you know, did all of that in my free time. And it wasn't until the app had been selling well for about nine months and I'd been saving away, you know, every bit of that money that I finally left my job. So then when I went back to freelancing, you know, I made sure to have clients lined up in advance, um, a good chunk of money in the bank, about a year's worth of years worth. Yeah. Ish. Not quite a year's worth mm-hmm. of expenses in the bank. Um, but then also I had this product that was making me, you know, about $2,000 a month. So that became a nice baseline to even out the roller coaster of, of freelancing. And so then what did you do when you left the company? What, what did you start building and what did you start creating? Well, so I started working on my blog because everyone that I knew uh, online that was doing cool things were they were blogging about it. And mm-hmm. um, it took me a while, but finally about that point, uh, the lesson was setting in that it's not enough, you know, to to build cool things, you have to teach and share about it if you want your products to be known and, and for people to buy them. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I started teaching and sharing and, and about when I left my job, I started writing one blog post every week um, and making that a consistent habit. And my blog didn't really go anywhere for quite a while. Um, But then, you know, I just worked on more iPhone apps. I, I built another, flashcards iphone app that still hasn't made any money Mm -hmm. Uh, i think i'm at like 40 or 50 bucks total on that one over a couple (laughs) years and uh then i wrote a habit forming tracking application called commit and that app's done pretty well i think it's about ten thousand dollars in sales in the last uh year and a half since it came out year and a quarter and but more importantly it's an app that i use every day Mm-hmm. And it's helped helped me to form some pretty important habits. Um, so yeah, at that point, I decided that I wanted to start working on writing a book. And I'd been doing a lot of iPhone app design, you know, for my own projects. 
and nearly all of my client work and freelance projects were iPhone or iPad apps. And all my friends who were developers were kept asking me questions about, you know, where should I go to learn app design? And, and there wasn't a lot of great places to send them. And so I put it, started putting together my own stuff. Um, but the, the problem with writing a book is that it's a huge amount of work. And so I'd started to write a book about web design and other topics in the past. And I'd always written out like an outline and then maybe a couple pages of content mm -hmm. and then kind of lost interest or realized how much work it was and, and let it slack off. And so what did you do to build the habit to actually finish a book? Yeah. So I, this time I was fairly determined to make it different. And I read a blog post by Chris Gillibo about writing 1000 words a day, which at the time sounded, you know, terribly daunting. Mm -hmm. um, and, but I knew that if I could make that slow, consistent progress, then I could finish um, a project. And I'd taken that approach of working on things every day uh, to improve my programming skills. And, and so, you know, that's just, if you want to get good at something, you, you work on it a little bit each day rather than in uh, chunks for a couple hours, you know, maybe once or twice a month. And so I used the iPhone app that I'd written, which is commit to, to put in the habit. And the commitment was, I will write 1000 words a day. And as I built up the habit, you know, you mark off the days that you do it and it keeps track of, of your streak, your days in a row. And it took me quite a while to make it a consistent habit. Mm -hmm. I think I started doing this in March, 2012. And it wasn't until July that it really became a consistent habit. Cause I would build up a chain of like three days in a row and mm -hmm. then miss a day or, and then seven days in a row and miss a day. Mm -hmm. And, or I think at one point I got 20 days in a row and then went on a, on a trip and, and didn't mm -hmm. catch up. But anyway, starting in July, is when I really made a consistent streak. And uh, now I've written a thousand words a day for 260 days in a row. Holy cow. <laughs> and you would say that that single thing is probably one of the biggest catalysts for success in the past year? Yeah, absolutely. Because if you look at all the people you know who are successful online, they all teach. So whether they're teaching about design like I am or how to run a business, um, personal finance, anything, they all teach. And uh, words are the most common way to teach. And so the more content you can put out um, and the more you can share, then the more popular you're going to become and, um, and the more people will follow you. And so... <clears throat> when I started writing consistently, then I could finish that book. Um, you know, finish the first book, which was on app design and write a, you know, a ton of guest posts to go with that post for my own site. Um, to do a successful launch, there's just a huge amount of content that goes into it. And so by writing a thousand words a day, which is really just like two or three pages, um, and it doesn't sound quite as daunting when you do that. Um, I was able to put out the huge amount of content necessary. And so you were committed to this goal of writing a thousand words a day. Were there particular environments you needed to be in? Was there a specific app that you used? Was there, did you turn off your internet on your computer? Like what are some of your writing hacks? Yeah. So, uh, one that I've acquired more recently is to stand up while I'm writing. Uh, that makes the biggest difference. Hmm. The, I don't use anything fancy, but the bookshelf that's behind me, I put my laptop on the top shelf and uh, propped up on a, on a stand. And then I put my keyboard on the second shelf and then I just stand there and write. Um, and that helps keep me focused. I also modify, it's a little bit technical, but I modify the host file on my computer to block sites you can use like rescue time or other programs to do it yeah there's one called self-control for mac 
that's self control. Nice yeah. Too. So basically, to prevent me from going to Twitter and Facebook and Hacker News and those other sites, mm-hmm. that I have this habit of, you know, it's the command T problem where as soon as there's something that causes a slight delay, you know, when I, whatever I'm working on, like uploading a file or it could be like a 10 second delay. And my habit was to hit command T and go to Twitter, you know, open mm-hmm. up a new tab and browse somewhere else. So, uh, those all help. And then I also really like the, uh, Pomodoro method for like just scheduling out what you're going to do and then setting a timer mm-hmm. that especially helps when, uh, like I'm hitting writer's block on something and really struggling to write, then I'll just set the timer for for 25 minutes. And I'll say, I'm going to work on this and try to write for 25 minutes. And once it hits that amount, I can just walk away and be done mm-hmm. and come back to it later or something like that. So, and so let's, we're, we're talking about writing and that leads directly to, you know, self-publishing or launching books. And so I know you have a lot of experience with this in the past year. What are some of your um, biggest lessons learned from launching a couple books last year? Yeah, so the first lesson would be, as far as marketing, that teaching is the best form of marketing. Um, so for me, instead of having to buy ads or uh, anything else to promote my books, all I do is put out a huge number of, not even a huge number, but just put out some good tutorials on app design and and uh uh, you know, app marketing and other things that people will be interested in and use that to build an audience and, and uh, get people to, to come to me. And that works not just for books, but for just about any kind of product. Um, let's see. Other and, and directly you mean you write these posts and then at the end you mention that the book is coming out or you direct them to an email list where you give them something <laughs> free related to the book? Uh, yeah, either either one. So... I guess that brings to the kind of the next lesson, which is that email works far better than Twitter, Facebook, um, anything else. I would, I would take a thousand email subscribers over ten or twenty thousand Twitter followers mm-hmm. any day. I think that effort put into building up a Twitter following or a Facebook following is pretty much wasted. Uh, something that you put out is going to be seen by such a tiny fraction of your followers that. Uh, it's not worth the effort. Uh, not that you shouldn't use Twitter and Facebook, but that you shouldn't see that as your primary method mm-hmm. of marketing. Uh, whereas email, it's fairly easy to get people to subscribe and you know people read or at least deal with. Whether they may not read it, but they'll archive it or delete it, or you know, in some way they will deal with every single email in their inbox, unless they're like me. But that's, <laughs> That's a different story. If, if you suck at email, then <laughs> anyway. Um, so I, the method I use to launch my first book uh, works really well. I used it for both books. And that's to first start with whatever audience you have to start with is great. I had like 100 RSS subscribers mm-hmm. and maybe 500 Twitter followers when I started. So nothing to go go brag about mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and so the the first thing that i did though was put up a landing page saying this is what i'm working on it's a new book um on designing apps it had like it had a little graphic of a book like the cover and stuff and then a paragraph about it and a email box to basically it said drop in your your email to uh here when the book launches mm-hmm. and I started sending people to that and at any time someone would ask me a question over email uh, you know I'd answer their question and say oh by the way my book's coming out you should check it out or I'd post about it on Twitter and, and other places and that got me a couple hundred email subscribers who probably 150 based off of just that stuff but really targeted email subscribers. But really, really targeted. Because they said, I'm interested in hearing when your book comes out. Mm-hmm. Um, then what I did is I wrote three or four fairly in-depth blog posts on topics related to my book. 
So that was uh, like user experience lessons learned from the new Facebook app uh, and other, I did a bunch of video tutorials and things like that. And at the bottom of each one of those blog posts was an email box saying, you know, I've got this book, it's coming out soon. If you want to hear about it, drop in your, your email mm-hmm. and I'll let you know. And people are a lot more willing to, or a lot more likely to share a a blog post or a tutorial that's useful in itself than they are to just share a landing page, mm-hmm. right? Because if I go share the tutorial to all my friends who design apps, um, they're going to get something out of it rather than they may be interested in the book, but it doesn't have, the landing page doesn't have any value of its own. Mm-hmm. So I picked up quite a few more email subscribers from those posts. The other interesting thing is that just having the book landing page and those three or four posts gave me quite a bit of perceived credibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, I designed a lot of apps uh, and done a lot of design over the years, but I didn't have you know, a huge high profile. I didn't design the Twitter app or right. Facebook or something like that. So... Uh, but Did just prove you knew what you were talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Just teaching gave that, that credibility that people were looking for. Um, and surprisingly, it only took three or four, four blog posts that were good uh, to get to that point. So then what you would do is say these blog posts come out a week apart leading up to your launch. Everyone who gets on your email list initially then, you know, the next week you send them an email, email saying, hey, here's the progress I'm making on the book. Uh, and then here's a tutorial that I just wrote that I know you'll love because you signed up for a book about designing apps. Here's a tutorial about, you know, something to do with designing apps. Mm-hmm. And then that gets, you know, so that first blog post will pick up some more subscribers. And then when the second blog post comes out, you send out that to your email list and it, and it keeps building. And what's really important about that is that you don't build up an email list and then be totally silent. Mm-hmm. So the last thing you want is to put up a landing page and then two months later, send out an email saying, the book's here, buy it. Right. I'm going to go, who the Were hell you again? Did you, how <laughs> did you get my email address and where's the unsubscribe link? Mm-hmm. Um, but if you keep providing value, building up to it, then uh, that's really good. So, you know, two weeks out from your launch, I would send out the table of contents and and more of an update. One week out, send out the sample chapter or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then that way, on your the morning of your launch, everybody's eagerly waiting for your book. Or at least they know it's coming. Yeah, and some people have already made the decision of whether or not they're going to buy it. Yep. Yeah, yeah, that's super important. And so with the App Design Handbook, July, I had no email list whatsoever and very little of a following. I launched it September 4th to almost 800 email subscribers, all acquired through the methods we just talked about. Mm-hmm. And the awesome thing about email is within 10 minutes of sending out that announcement email, I had $1,000 in sales. Mm-hmm. And that's just, that's why email is so fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, so by the end of the first day, I had $12,000 in, in book sales. And so you, leading up to launch day, you get, you write like a blog post a week, teaching people things maybe that you're already teaching in the book, but maybe you go yep. less in depth or more in depth or something like that. You try to get those blog posts shared by your network, uh, maybe picked up by something like Hacker News or um, a bigger site. Um, and then what do you do like launch day or launch week to like build up even more momentum off site off your own site? Yeah. So I did a whole bunch of guest posts. My goal was to, uh, on launch day be really hard to miss for my intended audience. Mm -hmm. Uh, the example that really stood out to me was, when Tim Ferriss came out with the four hour body a couple years ago, basically anywhere, anywhere that I went on the web, I would come across something by him, whether it was the 37 signals blog, which talks about software or 
Gizmodo, which talks about tech, other things, or, you know, actual fitness blogs, or, you know, he had some amount of content, something for everybody. Mm-hmm. And the content was always um, really tailored. He didn't write about, you know, kettlebell workouts for right. software blogs. Like mm-hmm. he wrote about uh, something related, like, you know, how he used whatever project management tool to put together and assemble his book. And he wrote that for a productivity blog, you know? Um, so I took that lesson and tried to do a smaller scale version of that. So, you know, for the design sites, I wrote design tutorials, uh, for pocket changed. I wrote about quitting my job and that process Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, trying to find content that fit the audience for, every site and I didn't do a great job of tracking, you know, the direct impact of how many people purchased through each link or anything Mm -hmm. like that. But I had a lot of anecdotal evidence of people saying, you know, wow, you wrote for every single blog that I read today. (laughs) And it really, it was only like seven blog posts Mm -hmm. that went live that day. But the idea is that people, we'll see someone tweet about your book once and they'll go, okay, whatever. They're not, they may or may not click on it. Mm-hmm. And then they go to their favorite design blog, read about, read a post and go, oh, that's cool. And then they see that it's written by the author of that book. Mm-hmm. And they're like, okay. And then, you know, imagine later that a- afternoon, come across another blog post, find out it's written by the same person and by that point, you'll really start to take, you know, take notice. Mm-hmm. And if those were spread out over, you know, several months, you may not take notice. But if it all makes this big splash in one day, um, it works pretty well. And so, so. How, do, how do you pitch someone um, a guest post idea? Do you make sure you have a connection beforehand or someone that maybe knows them that can introduce you? Yeah, I always try for a connection. It wasn't. It wasn't always possible, right. uh, but you know, with there's a lot of people just trying to promote their products, and um, if you don't have a big following or a big reputation, then if you just say, "Hey, I want a guest post on your site," you're going to fall into that mm-hmm. that category and and get ignored. So, an introduction is the best way to do it. Um, I still did a lot of cold emails, um, but you know, I would pitch them titles and then it also helped to be working on something that had a little bit of credibility with it. Mm -hmm. Just the very act of, of writing a book and then having a landing page to point back to, I could say, you know, Hey, I'm Nathan. I'm the author of the app design handbook. Mm -hmm. It's coming out on this day. I'd love to teach your audience some more about app design. Here are three things I could write about. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that in and of itself is a much better pitch than what I've seen a lot of, which is, dear editor, I would like to contribute right. something that's unique to your blog. Like, so you, you start standing out right away. And the fact that you'd give like titles and stuff like that, even if it is a cold email, that still puts you above a lot of other people and they can actually reply to the email instead of just deleting it. Right. And if you don't know the name of the editor of the site that you're emailing, just figure that out. Like it's yeah. not hard. Yeah. So make sure you're emailing an actual person. Mm-hmm. Um, spend the 10 minutes required to discover their email address or, or something. Um, if it's a, someone you're really cons- that you would really like to write for and you think you'll get rejected by them right off the bat, then you can stalk them on social networks for a while. Um, email them things that, you think they'll find useful, you know, make it so by the time you finally ask them for something to the guest post, uh, they'll have a clue who you are, or you, you'll at least look familiar to them because from those conversations on Twitter or all the times you commented on their blog or something like that. Yeah, that's really good advice. I mean, reply to things they say in social media, comment on their posts, send them um, things that are helpful, whether that's I mean, it could be a mistake on their site. It could be another useful article that is in a similar niche or something that you didn't write. So it's not like self-promotional. Right. And so what are some other 
like self-publishing tips you have, would it have made sense for you to publish to Kindle or to find a traditional publisher for these projects? Um, I don't think so. <laughs> and the reason for that is, well, let's see. Let's take traditional publishing first. Um, first, I don't think they'd have me, even if I wanted to. Maybe now they would, but then, you know, I had no audience whatsoever, uh, didn't have crazy credentials or anything like that. And so, so you had to publish a book to be able to publish a book, basically. I think so. <laughs> or at least have something that I brought mm-hmm. to the table. They'd mm-hmm. be like, okay, so we're going to do all this work and take this risk on you, but what are you, what are you contributing? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that would be one issue. The other thing is advances and payments on uh, technical books are really low. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's hard to make money from a book if it's not really, really popular. Um, if it traditionally published. So that's why I didn't go that route. But I think, it, you know, looking back, there are a lot of reasons to not go that route. Back at the time, the biggest reason was that, uh, you know, I was pretty sure they wouldn't even have me. So. <laughs> Little, I gave myself a pre-rejection there, I think. Um, as far as you, whether to publish on Kindle or the iBook store, uh, there's really two big reasons. And the first is email, which we touched on earlier. If you sell on either of those places, you don't own the customer. They're not your customer. They're Amazon's customer or Apple's customer. Mm-hmm. And the way that shows up is that you get to see some stats of you sold this many books, congratulations, but you have no idea who purchased them or anything like that. Right. So, I mean, just yesterday we put out um, a book at Think Traffic that was just a bunch of our blog posts. Someone compiled them and put it into a Kindle format and there's probably 30 blog posts in it or something. And we had sales and we were rising and we're like up there next to like Malcolm Gladwell and stuff. But like, I don't know who bought it like at all. You don't have any information. Yeah, so that to me that's a huge issue because then I have no way of reaching those people. So to even say I thank you. Out, yeah, to even say thank you. Yep. So when I came out with my second book, I had this list of a few like I started with this list of a thousand people, basically, from the first book that I can build on top of to promote the second book. Mm-hmm. I wasn't starting from scratch or anything like that. And those are a thousand buyers or is that the interest list plus your buyers? Interest list plus buyers. Gotcha. And it was in the 1200 range. I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when you can contact your customers, you can keep building on every product launch. Uh, so that's one big issue. The other thing is pricing. And if you sell through uh, on Kindle, for example, you can choose any price you want but they heavily incentivize you to choose a price between $3 and $9. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, they'll take a 70% cut if you choose something outside of that range. So if you price at $11, then I believe you get 30% and they get 70%. So whereas it's flipped if you, uh, if you price within their desired range. So that's a pretty strong incentive. Um, and then for the iBook store, they won't let you price above fifteen dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you're selling a product to a very small audience, you need to have uh, high pricing if you want to make money from it. Mm-hmm. I've sold iPhone, you know, two dollar iPhone apps before to a few thousand people, and you know, a thousand sales is two thousand bucks. Mm-hmm. That's not even a month's worth of expenses. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, selling a, a book at, at higher prices than even a couple hundred sales could turn into a, a meaningful amount of money. Mm-hmm. So the approach that I took on pricing first was to have multiple packages, which is really, really important. I can credit having multiple packages with making me at least another $50,000 over the last six months. Uh, so I had sold just the book, uh, for $39. 
and it's a technical book and I'm selling to people who use these skills to make money. And so, uh, you know, I think it's really important to price based on value that you deliver. Uh, so that was the first part, but then I added higher packages, uh, for that design handbook, they were at $80 and $170 that included more, you know, video tutorials, code samples, uh, sample projects, more lessons, Photoshop files, you know, all this extra additional content. And that way the people who maybe were just starting out and $40 was a lot of money to them, they could buy just the book, learn a ton of things from it. Uh, but then the people who were using the company credit card or built apps professionally and really wanted that extra stuff, they could pay 170 uh, for it. And the amount of money made is a, is a huge difference. Mm-hmm. And so having high prices like that at not only high prices, but tiered prices, uh, lets you be open to a much larger percentage of customers. You don't have to exclude people as much and you make a ton more money. Mm-hmm. And when you're, when you're teaching something with your book, as opposed to a novel or something that's entertainment based, right people are more willing to pay for something when they're learning because they probably spent five or six figures going to college, you know, that type of thing. They're willing to pay more to learn, not only because it's a business expense, not only because maybe their company will pay for it, but just because there's a return on investment when you're learning something as opposed to if you're like watching a movie or reading a novel. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. If you're publishing, um, fiction or other things, then I don't recommend pricing. Like a biography it. for like $200. Yeah, I, would, I wouldn't price it that <laughs> like that. So when I talk about self-publishing, I actually only know about publishing teaching materials basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and always think about it like how much time, do you know, if I put out a really specific tutorial or code samples or, you know, Photoshop files, um, how much time am I saving somebody by doing that? Does it save them five hours worth of work? And if they're a software professional, you know, five hours is worth a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, so charge based on what, what it's worth. And Not it, based it just, on what Amazon tells you to price it at. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, and so as a writer, what are some of these tools that you've used, um, you know, to help you finish the books, um, to sell them, um, and then what, tell us a little bit about ConvertKit, the tool that you're building that you wish you would have had to sell these previous books. Yeah. So to write the book, uh, to write both books, I used Scrivener, which is, uh, just a writing program. It's designed for like screenwriters and, uh, I, I think, you know, any kind of book writing, but it makes it easy to format books and, um, it's good. It costs 40 bucks. I think it's worth it, but it's by no means a prerequisite to write a book. And so does it help you categorize like by chapter and making table of contents and exporting and stuff like that? So I can throw a whole bunch of content in there and just write kind of all this random content or sporadic content and then later piece it together and try it out. You know, what would it be like if I organized the book like this? And it lets me drag and drop to reorder Mm -hmm. content areas and, so as opposed to like using Microsoft Word or Apple's Pages or something where it's just strictly for, it's like you're writing on a piece of paper. It really helps you categorize it. Yeah. And, you know, it's not, it's not a huge benefit, but it's enough that I think it's worth the 40 bucks. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as designing and publishing the book, I used iBooks Author, which is really nice for doing layout. And, you know, I had a ton of screenshots and images in both my books. Uh, and it makes it really easy to do all of that. Um, let's see, other tools. I used MailChimp. They have a free email plan for up to 2,000 subscribers. Uh, I use that to collect those emails, you know, on my landing page and on my blog posts. Um, let's see, I'm trying to think if there are any other tools. Oh, I used uh, Gumroad to handle the e-commerce. Uh, and I've moved a ton of money through Gumroad and absolutely love them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's talk about Gumroad for a bit. Cause I mean, we're both 
friends with the people there and we just yeah. love what they're up to. So, so why use Gumroad instead of something like PayPal or Stripe or something? Right. So probably one of the main things people notice about Gumroad when doing a side-by-side -side comparison is that Gumroad charges more in fees. They charge 5% instead of, you know, 2.9% or something like mm -hmm. that. Totally worth paying for it. Um, I design software professionally. You know, my job was to make software as easy to use and as intuitive and as great of an experience as possible. And I can say with confidence that Gumroad has the best checkout experience anywhere on the web. They don't have you fill out address and name and all these long fields. They just ask for the bare minimum that, that they need to process a payment. Mm -hmm. And it's just this really smooth slick process. It's really easy to embed in your own site without having to worry about, you know, getting SSL certificates or all the security stuff. They handle all that for you. Mm -hmm. Payments work really well. Uh, they're a pretty small team. And so I, I think for my first book, I was uploading some large files that I had to make a switch for at one in the morning, the morning that I was launching, you know, so I was planning to launch in five hours. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the guys at Gumroad was, you know, I sent an email and got a response right back. And, and so, at, you know, at one in the morning, he was helping me mm -hmm. get stuff ready for my launch, you know. So they totally go above and beyond on anything support related. Uh, and it's just nice to deal with humans instead of PayPal. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, maybe that should anyway. be the title of this podcast episode. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So uh, they're great. I can't recommend them enough. And they have uh, some cool features that they've put out recently. You can do stuff like zero plus. So you can yeah. say like, Hey, I have this free download. If you want to pay for it, great. If you don't want to, you can get it. Um, PDF stamping is a new thing that I found out that yeah. they do. So if you're worried about your book going um, public <laughs> to like torrented sites and stuff, they'll stamp it with the buyer's name and be, you'll know who did it, you know? <laughs> yep. Yeah. So they've, they've got some great stuff. I love the zero plus or the whatever plus pricing. So you can just put in, you know, either zero plus or 10 plus, you know, and it'd be, what you know, ten dollars would be the minimum, and they can pay whatever amount they want beyond mm -hmm. that. Uh, so lots of great stuff. And if you're into designing software, then there are lessons. You know, you, they have some amazing interactions that are really well done. Uh, so at the very least, go look through their software because it's very, very well built. Mm -hmm. So let's see. Oh, other tools. You know, bringing up ConvertKit. Uh, one thing that's really hard to do in uh, traditional email marketing software is setting up autoresponder series. Um, and this comes in, it's not as important when you're first launching the book, uh, but afterwards you need a good way to continue to sell the book on a regular basis. And so what I did was at the bottom of all my blog posts that were still getting traffic, you know, that were relevant, I switched out that, hey, I'm writing a book, it comes out soon, sign up to be notified box, with one instead that gave out, you know, a free PDF or free video tutorials or something, trade for dropping your email. And a lot of people would just put, hey, I have a new book, check it out. Right. And As I, opposed I did to that what for you just a said month or so, but then I became more sophisticated. <laughs> uh, and... Uh, so what that does is you get their email address and you give them something really valuable. Um, and that's a good way to get like all that drive-by social media traffic mm -hmm. who have never heard of you before, scan through the article and leave. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, you give them a reason to become engaged. Um, and, and then you have a way to reach them again with their email address. But more importantly, you put an option on that form that says, I'd like to receive a free course, a free 30 day course on designing better iPhone applications. And once they opt into that, you continue teaching them more things. You know, the first three emails are just some great tutorials on, on design or, you know, uh, detailed lessons on personal finance or whatever your niche is. Mm -hmm. And then from there, 
you know, maybe the fourth email casually mentions your product. Hey, if you've liked these lessons, you'll like this book. Fifth email is, uh, you know, purely educational. And then maybe the sixth email, or you can play with the numbers, is a hard sell for your product. Mm -hmm. So instead of them coming to your site and you saying, buy my book, mm -hmm. and them going, uh, who are you? Why should I trust you? See you later. <laughs> what have you done for me? Goodbye. <laughs> yeah. You, you can bring them in slowly, teach them, keep teaching them more and more and more. And that way, when you finally ask for the sale, uh, you, you're a trusted advisor, you know, someone they've been learning from for weeks and not some random guy on the internet. Mm -hmm. uh, and then if they don't buy, you know, you just move right back to educational content. And then maybe a week later, you could send another email can be a reminder to, to purchase. Um, and so how does ConvertKit help you do this? Yeah, so setting it up in MailChimp and Aweber is totally possible, but really frustrating. And so uh, ConvertKit is basically designed around this process that works incredibly well for selling. Uh, so it makes it very easy to drop a form in your webpage that gives out that incentive, you know, the free PDF or video for signing up. And then it makes it very easy to build up a course or an email sequence to go out uh, to promote your your product. So, and then you're working on a third book now. Yeah. Uh, and by the time this goes live, it might be out already. But you can you can talk proactively about it. <laughs> yes, exactly. So this new book that I'm writing it doesn't have a title yet, but it'll be out in, a, in a, not too long. Uh, that's an example of if you write a thousand words a day, it's fairly quick to write a new book. <laughs> you um, end up with the book before you know what to call it. Yeah, exactly. So the new book is on self-publishing. And what inspired me to write it is I have another friend who wrote one self-published book that was pretty successful. And uh, for his second book, he was doing just a single package. And I kind of got after him and said, no, 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 you need to do multiple packages. And he was like, oh, right, yeah. And he put it together and ended up making him an extra 10 or 15 grand uh, the first week that his book came out. Mm -hmm. And so that made me think, okay, I've got a lot of different um, tools and tactics, you know, my book launch process and all of that that are helpful. And so I'm writing it down, putting it in a book, and it'll basically be a blueprint for self-publishing, taking it from no audience to hopefully at least a few thousand dollars in sales. Mm -hmm. so. Well, cool. Well, thank you very much, Nathan, for being on today. We covered a ton of stuff involving self-publishing. We didn't even get into pricing or anything like that, which I know is another one of your specialties, but where can people find you online? Everything I do is at nathanberry.com and that's Barry is spelled B-A-R-R-Y. And, uh, on Twitter at Nathan Berry. So awesome. Well, thanks for joining me today, Nathan. All right. Thanks. Take care. So I hope you enjoyed that interview. Nathan really knows his stuff when it comes to self-publishing books online. Next week, I'll be talking with Alan Perlman, who works at HubSpot and had one of the most interesting jobs that I've ever heard of. He used to travel and live in countries for up to three months at a time to do cost of living analysis. So he went to over 50 countries in just a couple of years working for this company. And so we'll talk about that experience and what he's learned working at HubSpot now. See you next week. Thanks for listening to the Pocket Changed Cubicle Renegade podcast at www.pocketchanged.com. To read this episode's show notes or check out other sessions, head over to cubiclerenegade.com.